Last week, last couple weeks, we've been in Genesis chapter 14, and Eric took us through uh, great reminders of the sovereignty of God. In the, in the events of Abram's life, and this morning we're going to pick up, again, always remember that these chapters, these are not, you know, God-inspired numbers in these chapters, right? God didn't put them in there. The original writers didn't put them in there. So understand this morning as we go through this passage, this is just following along the heels of chapter 14. This is, this is just kind of the next uh, series of events here in chapter 14. And I don't want to take the time this morning uh, to just read through the whole chapter at one time. We'll go through it uh, just verse by verse like we normally do. Um, so we, we'll, we'll just kind of jump into it here in a few minutes. But I, I want to ask you a question. What are you afraid of? This morning, what are you afraid of? What are you worried about? What are you anxious about? Is there something that's going on in your life right now, uh, or maybe something that you've been through recently, or maybe something that you're afraid or anxious might happen in the future? What is there something that comes to mind when I ask that question? Now, I'm not saying what are you afraid of, like the dark. <laughs> you know, that's not what I'm, I'm thinking about. Think about circumstances of life, right? Things that, that, we begin, that, that we get anxious about. What are some of those things that we get anxious about? You're going to discuss some of this a little bit in the A&I time, but, but just, just throw it out there. What's some things that, we are, that we're anxious about? Job. job, right? We're anxious about a job. Uh, whether, whether it's the fact that we, we think we're going to lose our job or whether it's the fact that um, we already have lost our job and we haven't been able to find one or maybe there's, there's some anxiety about maybe I should switch jobs. I know we've had several people with, with that line of thinking as well, you know? And so, yeah, absolutely, a job. What else? What else do we get anxious about, worry about? Okay, children and grandchildren, if they make good decisions, absolutely, right? Especially, you know, as parents, you're right in the thick of everything, you know? And, and, you, and you see every single day all the failures that your children have, and you, and, you, and you wonder, what in the world am I going to do to get these kids to turn out right, right? How in the world am I going to get these kids fixed? And then as grandparents, you know, you're, you're a little bit more hands-off because they're not there every day, but you still have that same concern, right? You still have that same uh, worry, anxiety, right? That you want, you want your children to grow up to be mature followers of Christ, right? You want them to be men and women, even as young people, you want them to be young people who are followers of Christ, who are good examples, right? That's what we desire. Sure. So those are some things that we worry about. Uh, this morning, um, we're going to look at kind of three things that, that I pulled out from this passage that I feel like Abram is worried about. And the title of my message this morning is Five Rests for Worried Souls. Five Rests for Worried Souls. I don't know what you're worried about this morning, if you're worried about anything this morning, uh, it could be something that some people might think is very small. It could be something that's very large. But whatever your worry is this morning, I want you to pay attention as we go through this passage, as God gives Abram these five rests so that Abram will cease worrying about these things that he's worrying about. So let's jump right into the passage and see what we're dealing with here. Remember, this is right on the heels of Abram going out and he's been fighting. I'm not going to try to say any of the king's names. I'll leave that to Eric. He enjoyed doing that. So he went out and fought all those kings, right? And he came back victorious with just a few men compared to their armies. He comes back victorious with not just, not just with the people, but even with spoils, right? He and the, and the other three uh, kings that went with him. And so they came back with all these great spoils. And then he meets Melchizedek. He gives him a tenth, right? And then... Uh, um, who is it? I forget off the top of my head. <laughs> Amson, thank you. Amson says, take, you know, take some of this stuff. And Abram says, no, 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 I don't, I don't want you to think that you made me rich. God is the one that's in control and, and he's the one that I serve and he's the one that will make me rich. So we've, we've just experienced this great uh, moment of faith in Abraham, right? Or in Abram at this time. We, we've experienced this great uh, vision of, of Abram as, as, a, as a man of faith. He's, he's gone out to war to save his nephew, and he's come back, and he's, and he's offered the right uh, posture before God and before this high priest of God named Melchizedek. 
But yet, what does God say to him right here at the beginning of this passage? In verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. Fear not. Well, why would God say to Abram, fear not? Any ideas? Maybe he was afraid. You know, the scripture doesn't tell us that, but I think the implication is, is there that Abram was afraid. What, would, what in the world would Abram, Abram be afraid of? Any ideas? Retaliation. That's a good one, right? After all, he's not very big in number, right? And he just went and he just whooped up on, on these kings. I don't know about you, but I'd be kind of scared of retaliation too. I'd be a little concerned that, you know, they're going to they're gonna get back together and be like, hey, we can't allow this guy to come in here and do that to us. Let's go take him out. After all, they just, they just took out all these people, right? They came all the way down through all here. Thanks for putting this up, by the way. And uh, they came all the way down through here. They just wiped out, right? So why couldn't they? Why couldn't they just come over and take care of Abram? You know, I think that's a, that's a reasonable fear. And so he's he's sitting there probably wondering, <laughs> are they going to come back after me? And God says, "Fear not." Uh, before we get into the rest, though, I want to look at the other two fears just so we get an idea kind of where Abram's head is at. So Abram's first fear, I believe, is that others would take retribution on him. His second fear, I believe, is that God would not come through on his promise. Let's look at verses 2 through 3. It says, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. What's he saying? He's saying, look, God, you've, you've made promises to me, right? Not only am I worried about these kings coming back to get me, but, but here, here's the deal, Lord. You've made some promises to me, and quite frankly, you know, I'm getting old. <laughs> and quite frankly, I don't have an heir. The only heir that I have is this servant of mine, basically like his, like his, his right-hand man, right? And in that time, if you didn't have... Uh, a biological heir, that was actually a common thing for them to take over and manage your stuff when you were gone. All right, so he's saying, the heir that I've got right now is not the one that it seems like you've been promising me. You've been promising me that I would have a multitude of children and that they would be biological. That was his understanding. He said, God, you haven't done this yet. And so Abram is, is anxious about how God is, and if God is going to fulfill this promise. Thirdly, Abram is anxious or worried that he would never see the end result of God's promise. He would never see the end result of God's promise. Jump down to verse 8. But he, Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Speaking specifically about the land. God's reminding him here, we'll get to it in a minute, that that he is, he is given this land of Israel, this land uh, of Canaan, to him and to his offspring. And, and, Moses, and o, Abram, Abram says to him, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God, what kind of guarantees can you give me? How am I supposed to know that this is real? That you, you've brought me all the way here. I'm here. I'm living in this land. I, I, I'm here, but how am I? I don't own it. I don't own any of this. I'm just, I'm just a sojourner. I'm, I, I'm just traveling around in my tents. I don't own anything here. In fact, he, he was not even going to own where he, where he buries Sarah in a few chapters, right? And so he, he says, I don't own anything. How am I going to know that I am going to possess this land? So three anxieties that Abram has as we come to this chapter, and the Lord is going to address each one of these with five rests. Five reasons why Abram should rest in God and who he is and what he has said. Not be worried, not be anxious, rest. And I think these points are applicable not only to Abram, but to us as well. Because the same things that God speaks to Abram are the same things that he speaks to us. 
And if you're here this morning and you're worrying, if you're anxious about something that's going on in your life or something that might go on in your life or something that has gone on in your life, this morning I hope you'll take heed to these five rests. And I hope you'll take them to heart and not just, not just write them down. I hope you write them down. Not just write them down and put them in a notebook and not look at it again, but think about it. Meditate on them this week and remember the God that you serve. So let's look at the first rest. The first rest that we have is found in verse 2. In verse 1, I'm sorry. It's the rest. We are to rest in the fact that God is the protector and the provider. We are to rest in the fact that God is the protector and the provider. Let's jump back to verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. He says, don't be afraid, Abram. You don't need to fear. You don't need to be anxious. You don't need to be worried. Fear not. I am your what? Shield. I am your shield. What is a shield for? Protection, right? A shield is for protection. We just, again, we just went through Ephesians not that long ago. We went through Ephesians chapter 6. We have the shield of faith. And what's the purpose of that shield of faith? Right, to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, right? It's our protection. Of course, the rest of the armor is protection too, uh, except for the, the sword. But it's, it's a large piece of protection. It's, it protects you from a lot of different things. It protects you from uh, hand-to-hand combat. It protects you from arrows, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a good form of protection. And God says, fear not, Abram. Why? Because I am your shield. I am your protector. He says, you don't need to worry about any of those other kings coming back and attacking you. Because even if they do, I am your shield. Even if they they try to take back what you have taken from them, even if they try to hurt you, I am your shield. I am your protector. God is our protector. He said, fear not. Don't be anxious. Don't be worried. Fear not. I am your shield. But not only that, he says, your reward shall be very great. Your reward shall be very great. Not only is he our shield, but he is our provider. He's our protector and our provider. Your reward shall be very great. Now, again, think about this. What has he just done? He just told the other king, look, I don't, I don't want any of the spoils. Just give me the people. Give me whatever they've eaten. You know, I just want, I want them to be safe. I want them to be taken care of. I don't want any of the spoils of the war, right? And not only that, but then he is, he's also given a tithe, right, to Melchizedek. And on the heels of this, God says, not only am I your shield, but you will receive a great reward. You will be richly blessed. I will provide exactly what I've promised you. God is our protector and our provider. So that's the first rest. Abram, don't fear what these people are going to do to you because I am your shield and your reward will be great. Let's look at the next rest. The second rest is that we must rest in the fact that God continually reaffirms his promise. God continually reaffirms his promise. We've already seen this some in Abram's life, have we not? God reaffirming his promise. But we can rest, we can have hope in God because he continually repeats the same thing to Abram over and over. He continually, he doesn't change. It doesn't, he doesn't go from, you know, you're like, well, you know, I know I said you're going to have lots of, let's, let's, let's pare that down a little bit. You know, parents, have you ever done that before? You know, you know, I, I promised this, but, you know, now that we're closer to the day, you know, maybe, maybe money's not quite the same as we thought it was going to be, or, you know, maybe I just don't feel like being out that long, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. And we're going we're gonna to kind of pare this down a little bit. We're, we're going to make things a little bit lighter uh, on me as a parent, right? Have you ever done that? Any horrible parents like me? No? Okay, great. I feel horrible. That's awesome. All right. So uh, we even did that this weekend. I don't know if you noticed, we went out to a little board game convention and we were supposed to be there all Friday and Saturday and we cut Saturday short. But I think, I think he forgave me, it's okay. 
Um, but yeah, so sometimes we kind of pray that God's not doing that, right? Every time God reaffirms his promise, he's not making it smaller, is he? No. In fact, if anything, he starts making it bigger, right? He talks about the sands. His, his children will be like the sands of the, of the shore. And then he's going to talk right here. Let's, let's take a look at it. He's going to say that they're like the stars, right? Let's look in uh, verses 2 through 6. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. What's the first thing he does? He says, stop worrying about that. Just like he said before, do not fear, right? Don't fear. He says, look, stop worrying about that. That's not the case. That's not going to happen. This guy is not going to be your heir, right? This man should not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So God clarifies his promise, does he not? It's not just some idea of an heir, but he, sa he says specifically what? Your very own son, your flesh and blood, your biological child will be your heir. He's reaffirming his promise. Not only that, he continues and he says, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So shall your offspring be. Look at the stars. Remember before he said, your, 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 your family will be like the, the, the sands on the shore. Then he takes them out and says, look at the stars. Can you count them? Can you count the stars? If you can, that's how many children are going to come from that air, from your own flesh and blood. God reaffirms his promise to Abraham, and this time specifically clarifying it, making sure that he knew this is not just some nebulous thing. Your biological son will be the heir, and that's through whom all of this will happen. So we can rest in the fact that God continually reaffirms his promise. Number three, we can rest in the fact that God is already working out his plan. We can rest in the fact that God is already working out his plan. Is he doing that in Abram's life? Absolutely. Let's keep going. Verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. What's he doing? He's reminding him that he's been working the entire time. Remember, he said, I am the Lord who brought you out all the way back from Ur. Remember we talked about Ur? Now I have to make a confession. Um, when I originally preached on Abram leaving Ur, we talked about Terah. We talked about reasons why they might have left Ur. And in my research at the time, I said I didn't see anything in Scripture really that stated that God had called Abram in uh, Ur. I proved myself wrong this week. All right, so we'll go back and edit that part out of the recordings. No, I'm just kidding. All right, it's okay to admit, to admit that you're wrong, right, even when you preach. So Acts chapter 7. Does anybody know what's going on in Acts chapter 7? Stoning of, well, not the stoning of Stephen yet, but he's, he's giving his, his decree, right? He's, he's preaching to him. Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen specifically states that God spoke to Abram in Mesopotamia before he went to Haran. Those are the exact words, before he went to Haran. So what I told you several weeks ago, ignore that. God actually did call him, according to Stephen's testimony in Acts chapter 7, in Ur. All right? Apparently, he had to call him twice, though, because he called him again in Haran in Genesis chapter 12, if I remember correctly. All right, so just in case anybody wonders, we make mistakes. All right, so God is reminding Abram, look, I've been working. Do you not remember that I brought you out of Ur? All the way back then, I, I moved you from Ur, even to Haran, and then down here and brought you to this land that you will inherit. 
I have been working the entire time. Remember, what did Melchizedek say to Abram when he came back victorious? He said, the battle wasn't won by you, but by whom? God, right? He said, God is the victor. He's the one that gave you the victory. God has been working every single step of the way, and he's reminding Abram, look, I'm the one that got this all started. I've, I've been working this entire time. He said, Abram, rest. Don't worry. I've been working. I'm at work. I've not ceased to work. The fourth rest. We can rest in the fact that God has revealed the final chapter. We're going to kind of skip a little bit here because there's two pieces I want to do together. Let's jump down to verse 12. We can rest in the fact that God has revealed the final chapter. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, listen carefully, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." Remember, Abram was worried about whether or not he would possess the land. How am I going to know? What's the proof? So one of the things that God does is he tells him the future. He shows him exactly what's going to happen. Now remember, who's writing this? But Moses, right? Who's he writing it to? Who? Israel, right? He's writing it to Israel, Okay. Is this not an amazing passage to think? Here they are. They've just come out of Egypt. They've, they're, they're, they're wandering through the desert. They're, they're doing all these things. And Moses is writing down the beginning of the world. And he's writing down everything that God has done from the beginning through Noah, through Abram. And he comes to this passage and he says, you know what? Everything that we've experienced in the last 400 years God told our father, Abraham, that this was going to happen. This was part of God's proof, not only to Abram, that the land was going to be given to them, but it was part of his proof to Israel that the land was going to be given to them. Do you see that? He says, your children are going to be soldiers. They're going to go down to another country and they're going to be servants. They're going to be slaves. And I'm going to bring down judgment on that nation. What was the judgment? What? Plagues, right? Ten plagues. I'm going to bring judgment upon that nation. And then they're going to come out and they're going to possess this land. Can you imagine being one of the Israelites at that moment and realizing, man, God told Abram that all that long ago? He says, rest. And understand that I'm going to bring your family back. They're going to possess this land. But not only are they going to possess the land, what else does he tell them? About himself. Anybody catch that? He says, your children will possess the land. But he says, as for yourself, in verse 15, you shall go to your fathers in what? In peace. You shall go to your fathers in peace. Again, what is he worried about? He's worried about more war, more problems, right? He's worried about these people coming back to attack him. You shall go to your father in peace. Soon? Well, no, he's got a lot of stuff to do, right? At a good old age. God promises him and shows him that his future, not just the future of his, uh, of his descendants, but of himself. You're going to go to your fathers in peace. You're going to live to a ripe old age. Of course, he's already pretty old, right? And they're going to come back in the fourth generation. Why? Why, why is all this taking so long? 
He gives him a reason, right? He says, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Going back to our last one, I'm still working. I'm still working things out, Abram. I'm still in control. We've been talking about the sovereignty of God. I've got this. I'm still moving. I'm still working. And, and, and there are things that I want to be in place. And one of them is that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. But when it is, you will have the possession of this land. The fifth rest is that we can rest in the fact that God has made a covenant that he will keep. God has made a covenant that he will keep. Let's jump back up to verse 8. Abram is just asked, you know, how am I going to, you know, how, how do I know that you're going to do what you've said? Uh, let's read in verse 8. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought, all, and he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. What in the world is going on here? Anybody know? I mean, it sounds kind of like a weird sacrifice, right? He, he takes these animals, most of them he, he cuts in half, and he lays them aside, and he just makes sure that the birds aren't, you know, pecking at him. You know, he, he, he understands, he understands what's going on. We don't have a clue. Uh, unless you've studied it out, you probably are sitting here going, that's really weird. <laughs> you know, we don't really have a lot of other examples of this in Scripture. Um, but if you go back through, there is, there is one example, and I just realized I forgot to write it down. It's in Jeremiah. Um, there's one example of this. Actually, it's, a, it's a, an example of someone failing to uphold a covenant. But this is commonly known at that time as a blood covenant. And the idea is that they would take these animals, and they would, this would be for a very strong oath, a very strong covenant, one that... Um, would have dire consequences if you broke it. And so they would take an animal and they would cut it in half and they would put one half here and they would put the other half here. And what would happen is the people who were involved in the covenant would walk between the pieces. And the purpose of that was to show the strength of the oath, the strength of the covenant. Basically what they were saying when they were walking through these pieces is they were saying, this separation of this animal, this rendering of this animal should happen to me if I fail to fulfill my end of this covenant. Now, we don't have any instructions from God as to what Abram's supposed to do, but somehow Abram had an idea of what God had in mind. Uh, I don't know, maybe he did tell him and we just don't have it recorded. We don't know. But for whatever reason, Abram understood what was going on. And so Abram takes these and he, and he lays out, cuts everything except for the birds. My assumption is probably had one bird on, on each side. It doesn't say that, but we don't know. Uh, but he, he cuts the other animals in half and lays them out. Um, and then he just makes sure, you know, he's, he's apparently waiting for God to either tell him to do something or, or to do something himself. And, and he's, you know, shooing the birds away, making sure that everything is, is exactly the way that it's supposed to be. And so he's doing all that, and then we get to the vision that we just talked about, where God is explaining that he's going to bring his children back. But then we pick up this, this part up right back again here in verse number 17. It says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. What happened? So we have a smoking fire pot, or like an oven type thing, all right? That and a flaming torch. And what does it say that it did? It passed between the pieces, right? It passed between the pieces. Now, there's a lot of opinions on what the, um, the oven or the fire pot and the torch represent. Um, I think... 
To me, I think probably the best ideas is uh, the, the fire pot being God's holiness. Um, we see that in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and the seraphim comes down and takes a coal from off the fire and purges him. I think that's a good, a good interpretation of that. Um, the torch often is uh, given the idea of God's leading, God's guidance. Um, truth is, we don't know for sure, but, you know, anytime you look at symbols in Scripture, um, some of them are clear, some of them Scripture explains, some of it doesn't. Um, but that's, that gives you an idea maybe of what God is doing here. Abram has laid out these animals in a covenant ritual. And here we see after this vision that God gives him, we see God represented by this fire pot and this torch passing through the pieces. Verse 18, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephraim and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. What's he saying? I'm making a covenant with you. This land is yours. Your offspring will possess it. I am making the strongest of covenants that we know about with you. He's basically saying, if it doesn't happen, let this be done to me. And if you notice, did Abram pass through those pieces? No. God's the only one that passed through those pieces. See, this covenant that God's making with Abram had nothing to do with Abram. He had no power, no influence on it. It was solely a covenant by God to Abram. And he illustrates that to him by passing through alone. The rest that he says to Abram, don't fear, don't be anxious about all these things because I am a God who has made a covenant with you. A, a, a dire covenant, a, a very important, unbreakable covenant with you. And I will finish it. I will complete it. I will bring it to pass. That's great for Abram, but what about us? What about us? The first point was that we can rest in the fact that God is the protector and provider. Is that true? He told Abram he was his protector and provider. Is he our protector and provider? Psalm chapter 46, verse 1. I should have marked these. Very familiar verse. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What else, what else does he say, though, after that, right? That's, that's usually where we stop, right? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He says, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We will not fear, because God is our refuge and strength. Psalm chapter 23, you guys know that one very well, do you not? What is it? What do we call that? Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm. Some of you are going, I have no clue what you're talking about, Dave. <laughs> the shepherd's psalm. Somebody could probably quote it, but I'll, I'll read it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those are a couple of examples from the Psalms. Let's jump into Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, another familiar passage. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like any one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be, will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Is God not our protector and provider? He is, but why do we fear? None of those passages were new to anyone here in here, I don't think. Yet, why do we fear? Why do we worry? Why are we anxious? Because we forget. We forget to rest in the fact that He is our protector and our provider. What about resting in the fact that God continually reaffirms His promise? God is not speaking to us like he did to Abram. God doesn't just audibly come back and say, hey, don't forget, this is what I said, right? We have to take a little bit of initiative in this one. But his promises are all there, are they not? Anytime we want to go back and reaffirm them, we can, can we not? They're all right here. He's given them to us not as a verbal reminder as he did to Abram, but even better as something that we ourselves can go back to time and time and time again as we need to be reminded of his promises. I just jot, jotted down a couple of promises off the top of my head. First John 1 John 1.9. Is that not a precious promise? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And not just forgive, but what? to cleanse from all unrighteousness. What a great promise. And we have the opportunity to go back to it over and over and over again, especially when we fail. We have the opportunity to memorize it, to remind ourselves of it. We can reaffirm what God has promised us. Philippians chapter 4. I like the book of Philippians. If I can get there. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Is that not a promise? My God will supply all your needs. We just talked about Matthew chapter 6 when he says, don't worry because I've taken care of the birds of the air. I've taken care of the grass, of the lilies of the field. Will I not take care of you? It's a promise. There are many other promises I'm sure that we could list out and maybe you can do that in your A&I time this morning. How can we rest in the fact that God is already, we're already working out his plan? Let's stay here in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, I thank my God in, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
Verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says, look, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That means God's already started, right? The moment you were saved, you, God began a sanctification process in your life. He began the process of conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. And He's been doing that every day since. Day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. He's already working. Have you ever asked yourself or maybe even asked God, are you, are you doing anything? Maybe you failed the same thing for the umpteenth time and you're like, why can I not have victory over this? Why do I keep falling? Why do I keep failing? And, and if we're not careful, we begin to blame who? God, right? What's up, Lord? Why, why won't you help me with this? And we forget that he's doing it. And he's using our failure to do it too. And he's day by day working in us to complete what he started at salvation. What else? Philippians 2, verse 13. Starting verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed so much, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who what? Who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, God is working in you. He's doing something in you. Of course, in James, we know that he brings trials, right? James tells us that he brings trials. Why? To make our life hard? No, so that we will grow spiritually. So that our faith will grow. So that our patience will grow. He allows these hard things to come into our life. He's working. Even when we think that he's not, we can rest in the fact that God is already working out his plan to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. How can we rest in the fact that God has revealed the final chapter? I have a couple passages here. One of the, one of the passages I really like in Psalms is Psalm chapter 73. And I want to read it all because I think it's a really good reminder. Um, thankfully, Eric chose not to read it the other week when he mentioned it. But Psalm chapter 73. Talking about resting in, in the fact that, that God has already given us the final chapter. Psalm chapter 73 says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, for me, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My step had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not troubled as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut, tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them. Did you notice that? God's people turning back to these people and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at, at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked. Every morning, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of, our, of your children. But when I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. What's he saying? He's saying, I looked around and saw the wickedness that abounded and the fact that it seemed like every person who was wicked got whatever they wanted. 
Their life was easy. Everything was good. They were turning the people of God even back away from God. And yet I looked at myself and I said, everything that I do, it's hard. And there's a struggle. And it's not fair. Until I went to the sanctuary. And I saw and I was reminded of their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despite them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The psalmist here had his perspective changed. He was worried. He was anxious because the, the people who were wicked seemed like they were prospering. They were having everything. And then he says, but then I remembered their end and you will judge them. And I have you and I will dwell with you. Is that not our end as well? Is that not what God has promised for us as well in Revelation chapter 20? Starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who, seated, who was seated on it. From, the, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That if, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is a day of judgment coming. But yet for those of us who know Christ as our Savior, that judgment ends in glory. It ends in us living, as the psalmist said, with God. In heaven forever. That's the end, folks. That's the future we have to look forward to. We can rest in the fact that God has revealed the final chapter. And finally, we can rest in the fact that God has made a covenant. Yes, He made a covenant with Abram. We've looked at the covenant that He made with all the earth and Noah. We're going to see that God's going to make more covenants with Abram. He's going to, we're going to see God's makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. Our God is a covenant-making God. And he even made a covenant with us. Last time we had communion, Andy took us through that, if you remember. Took us through the covenant that Christ made during that Last Supper. The covenant in his blood. I want to jump quickly to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 11 through 14. This is right before what we, what we read earlier. In Him we have attained an inheritance, in Him being Christ, an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Abram was asking, how do I know I'm going to possess this land? And what did God do? God said, we're going to make a covenant. 
In fact, I'm the only one that's going to pass through it. It's all going to be relying on me to fulfill this covenant. And yet we have the same thing, do we not, through Christ? Christ has given us the covenant in His blood. He alone paid the sacrifice required for us to be justified, for us to be made whole with God. It's only Him. Nothing we can do to add to it. He did it. It's the covenant in His blood. But He doesn't just leave us with His sacrifice. What does this say? We have the Holy Spirit. Who is what? He's our guarantee. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee of what we just talked about. The fact that we can rest in the fact that we know the end, we can rest in that because we can rest in the covenant that God has made because we have the Holy Spirit that is the guarantee of that covenant. Christ is the mediator of that covenant. won't spend time reading in Hebrews. I challenge you to take some time and read through Hebrews. We've referenced that a lot lately. But Hebrews goes well with Genesis because um, there's a lot that matches up there. Spend some time in Hebrews as well. We can rest in God. Five reasons we can rest in Him. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what you're worried about, what you're anxious about. Uh, maybe nothing. Maybe, maybe everything's going well for you right now. Maybe, you know, the job's great, family's great, nobody's sick, everything's going well. Get ready. Because something's going to happen. That's part of God working in us. Something's going to happen. But no matter what happens, we don't have to worry. We don't have to fear. We can rest in our sovereign God because of all these things that we talked about this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our security and our hope does not rest in ourselves. It does not rest in our ability to manage problems. It does not rest in uh, our ability to be righteous, but it rests in you. And our ability to handle problems, our ability to be righteous, our ability to, to respond correctly to things is simply us submitting to what you're doing in our life. And I pray this morning, if there's anyone here that is struggling with anxiety, struggling with something that they're worrying about, more than likely that they have no control of, I pray that you would help them to find rest in you this morning. That they would see that you are the great provider that you are the protector, that they would see that, that you are currently working. They would be reminded of your promises, that they would understand what the end is. And Lord, maybe even above all, that they would just remember that you have made a covenant with them, a covenant that you alone can and will fulfill. I pray that we would be encouraged by this. I pray that we would be motivated by this, not only to stop worrying and fearing, but to move forward in faith as Abraham did, even in, in this passage, as we left off, that it says that Abraham believed you and it was counted to him as righteousness. Lord, may that be us. We, may we be people of faith. Despite the circumstances, may we be people who trust you, who rest in you and hope in you. And may you show yourself mighty and strong as we simply lean on you. For it's in Christ's name we pray.